Today, I'm talking to David Galanders, the Executive Director of Pathways of Hope. You'll learn why you should keep every business card, uh, never burn bridges, and a lot about the myths of homelessness and affordable housing, and the three buckets of reasons to end homelessness. So uh, I'm excited for you to listen. Let's get started. So welcome. David Galanders uh, is the Executive Director of Pathways of Hope. We're here talking. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So before we start talking about your current job, which I want to get into, tell us a little bit about your story and what led you to this work. Yeah, um, gosh, I'm never, I'm, I'm always, uh, it's always weird when people ask that because I'm always, uh, I'm always wanting to talk about the work and not about myself as much, but um Interestingly enough, like my story is kind of intertwined with with ours here, I guess, a little bit. Like I'm I'm a North Orange County kid, born and raised. I was born in Anaheim, lived in Placentia, uh, Brea, La Habra, and for the last 20 years or so, my wife and I have lived in Old Town Orange. So North Orange County has always been my place. And uh I grew up, you know, uh started off lower middle class, and then and then definitely my parents split up and stuff, and I just never had a lot of money. So I was always a little bit poor, a um, little bit of a rowdy kid. I was, um, I'm kind of an old punk rocker, as you can see by all the tattoos and stuff. And, um, you know, I, uh, I uh, didn't really have a ton of direction or guidance on what I was going to do with my career or whatever. So I ended up, um, was really interested in music and entertainment and skateboarding and surfing and snowboarding and stuff. So I got into a career that kind of melded those things together initially um, kind of did a little bit of my first two years of college at Fullerton college actually. And then, um, got into a career of doing music licensing and, and, and public relations stuff and different things in the action sports and music industries. And then like around 2005 or six, um, really wanted to go back to school and was really drawn to the whole concept of housing justice. So I just, I never found it. I never understood how, the richest society in the history of societies could have people that were unhoused and people that weren't fed and didn't have their health care taken care of. And it's, it's still something I'll just, I'll never be able to like reconcile in my head. And so um, I kind of thought I might have a couple of things to offer that kind of work. Um, I thought at first I was going to be a social worker when I was, when I was young, I always wanted to be a writer or a teacher. Those are like the two things I was always kind of married to. And then yeah. I just didn't have, I almost, I almost flunked out of high school several times. And like, I just didn't have any kind of like concrete direction or drive to do it. Um, so, but at that point I wanted to figure out at that point, like when I was, I guess I was probably like 26 or 27, I wanted to figure out how to like contribute to like these issues I was passionate about. So I, um, I, uh, I went back to school, finished school. And I thought at first I wanted to be a social worker. And then I realized like, I'm really not good at sitting across from people and like working through their problems with them. Like, that's not what I'm great at. So I was a case manager for a little while. And then I went back to graduate school and I got my master's in public service management. And what I realized, like, if there's anything I was strong at, it was team building, organization building strategy, um, kind of like the business side of things. So like my theory has always been like, take your talents. If you're passionate about something, take your talents and apply them the best you can. So that was how I figured out what I wanted to do. So um, I kind of made moves throughout my career to try to get me to a place where that's where I felt like I could contribute. And, um, it's kind of where I'm at now. Like I said, I'm still North Orange County. I've been, uh, tomorrow's my anniversary. I've been married for 16 years on October 8th. I have two kids. Um, I teach at Cal State Fullerton and at, and at UCI actually too. So I, I don't know, I kind of turned it, turned it around from being like a high school dropout to doing okay, I guess, or near high school dropout. Yeah, and, and I think so many, so many of our students, so many young people think that, that, that they have to have it all figured out so early. And yeah. I think that people sharing their stories like yours, that you didn't know what you wanted to do immediately and, and that you took a kind of windy path to get to where you are. And all of that, I think, informs the work, right? It makes you better yeah. at what you're doing because, because of your experiences. Yeah, I think there's like a generational thing too. Like I'm generation X and I felt like a lot of our time when we were 18, 19, 20, 21 was sat or was sitting around at punk rock shows or coffee shops kind of asking ourselves like the seemingly at the time important questions about life, right? And, and you know, thinking that like, 
you know, that was going to be fulfilling for us to try to discover those things. And I mean, it was in a lot of respects, but I think it's a different perspective um, than today where I feel like, I do feel like there are so many young people that feel this pressure of trying to have everything figured out right now. Yeah. Pressure from their parents, pressure from society to have those things sorted. And, and I don't think that's great. I actually, my meandering or whatever, which sadly, you know, if I'm being totally honest, like, I don't feel like where we are with sort of capitalism kind of always breathing down your neck to like make money and pay for a place. And like, you know, and all the create, which we can get into like all the crazy expenses of the world that we're now forced into, like, you don't really have the time to meander and sort it out and figure out for yourself. And the sad thing about that is like, that's actually a lot of times that's how you get the most productive people and the people who feel most fulfilled and find their way is they get that time and space to do it. And our society doesn't allow for that anymore. And that's really sad. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just a tremendous amount of pressure um, that, that I don't feel like our generation I'm Gen X too. I don't feel like our generation had that pressure. Um, No, not the same way for sure. I mean, we, you know, for us, it was, we could, I could have delivered, I could deliver pizza and afford to an apartment or not my, right. to myself, but I could afford to share an apartment with someone and right. on $400 a week or $500 a week, you know, and still pay up my other bills and go to shows right. and, you know, do yeah. stuff. And now that's just not plausible. It's you know, just right. Absolutely. So, so, so let's get into the work that you're doing now. Pathways of Hope. Yeah. What does it do and why is it so important? Yeah, we've been around for 46 years and, and, um, you know, what we really work on are the issues of housing justice um, in different ways. And that's a term that I think we've 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 grown into. Right. So I think, you know, the, the overarching feeling amongst our staff and hopefully our supporters and I think our board, too, is that, you know, we don't feel like anyone should be unhoused. Right. Like we should for like a variety of reasons. Right. Like there's three big buckets and I can get into those at some point for why like people should be always housed. But like you know, those issues are real and significant and they impact all of us, right? Like if someone's unhoused, it has an impact on all of us and you have to kind of see the big picture to think about that. But um, yeah, I've been around for 46 years, um, started in Fullerton, um, now really serve all of North Orange County with different projects. We have um, family shelters, family homeless shelters in Anaheim and Fullerton. Um, We have family affordable housing in Fullerton. And then we do a ton of um, sort of stuff that's spread out throughout the community where we work with individual apartments and stuff like that. And then we just got out of, you know, because of COVID and stuff, we just got out of this huge contract with the county where we were providing rental assistance to people affected by COVID. And, you know, that was 1,500 different households across North Orange County that we helped with that. So we have a lot of sort of spread out stuff. And then we do these college food banks, which you know about, um, sure. one in Fullerton College, we help work on, and then one at Cypress and, and at North Orange Continuing Education. And then we have our own food pantry and service center. It's actually a multi-service center in Richmond Park in Fullerton. So we're pretty busy. Um, right. We've grown a lot, which is great. You know, the last four or five years, we've really grown a lot and gotten introduced to new opportunities. And the future is pretty good for our work. I wish we didn't have to do it. Um, it would be wonderful know, to, but, to, to be put out of business, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's like, I think people pay that lip service sometimes, but like, I mean, I I mean, as authentically and genuinely as I can get it across, like, I mean, if we solve homelessness tomorrow, I'll I'll go get my special ed credential and teach special ed or something. I don't know. I'll do something else. I mean, it's fine. I just would rather not have people unhoused, you know? Right. So, so talk a little bit, because, because I want to talk about the myths about the, the unhoused and, and homelessness. Yeah. And and so let's start with the, the three buckets that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think there's three really great areas that you can select from as far as reasons to house people. Right. And to not let leave people in house. So I'll start like the first one is the most, I think, um, relatable to people across political stripes or social stripes or even class stripes or whatever. And that it's really expensive to have folks who are homeless, right? So someone who is chronically homeless probably costs, according to the United Way UCI study, probably costs our community upwards of 110-ish thousand dollars a year, I think in 2021 money, because it was over a hundred thousand back in 2017. I figure that's gone up inflation. So let's just say $110,000, right? Um, to house that person probably costs in 2021 dollars closer to $60,000. And when I say house them, I mean, pay for their apartment, put them in services, like have a case manager, help them keep them housed. Um, and so, you know, I, I, am not the smartest guy in the world, but I like to get two for one on my money. Right. So I'd rather have two people housed than one person homeless, you know, that makes sense to me. Um, and like people ask, well, what are those costs? Well, I mean, if you've ever been a city manager, which I have not, but I know enough of them and I work with enough of them that has to send their crews out constantly to clean up encampments, 
or to clean up after folks who have had episodes or have been staying behind a 7-Eleven or something, um, you know, and then dealing with uh, the community fallout and the, the amount of time it takes and then the response from, um, um, because, you know, when you work at City Hall, it's like homelessness is these days one of the top issues you have to talk about no matter what your position is. Correct. Almost, right. Right. Um, and then, you know, there's first responders. So cops and fire, right. They, that costs money for them to come out to respond to things. You know, so when the fire comes out with an ambulance for someone having a mental health episode, that's costing all of us money one way or the other. Right. Um, and then, you know, all those things and then the healthcare system. Right. So, you know, if you want to talk about why your insurance premiums are so high, a lot of people don't have insurance, put a strain on the system. Right. And so that drives it up higher. And so hopefully, thankfully, that one, Medi-Cal is really stepping in to help more with homeless folks, which I'm really happy about. But, you know, I mean, that's a good argument for universal health care, too. Right. Um, like true universal health care. But um, and then um, that's that's bucket one. There's just a financial and fiduciary place where that makes sense. Right. Bucket number two is community health. Right. So I have kids. Right. That are nine and 12. They're kind of outgrowing playgrounds and stuff like that. Right. But a lot of people have younger kids. And like I have kids that have to I live where I live in Old Town Orange. Like we've just always had homeless folks walk by our house every day. I mean, it's just like it's probably a little less as like this circle is kind of gentrified and Chapman's kind of had its way with the area. But like, you know, there's still a lot of interaction. We've had our homeless friends that we've talked to and gotten to know and stuff and by name. And um, so, you know, for my kids, it's never been super uncomfortable, but I get it for parents who are like, there's a guy across the the sand pit here having a mental health episode while my kid is on the swings. Right. Right. So there's a community health aspect to like what it means to have like a healthy community for all of us and availability of services and people taken care of that creates um, uh, an aura or a sense or a feeling of, okay, this is a safe, healthy place for all of us. So my kids, your kids, right. the guy who's unhoused, like, you know, who shouldn't be, you know, we should have, everyone should have a certain standard of living that is shared by the whole community. Right. And I, I don't think like, that's a crazy notion, right. The beloved community idea is like a good idea. Right. And I, it's hard to find people to argue with that, except, right. you know, there will be people who say that, you know, we're, we're in this situation because people made a, a quote unquote choice to be homeless, which is not, not true. It's disproven all the time. So bucket two is really about community health. So if you care about your community, the vibrancy of it, the health of it, um, if you want people to be safe, you know, safety and things like that, like you, you want to pay attention to this. That's another good reason to house people. And then the third one is just the moral issue, right? Like I'm, I'm personally, you know, it's funny because Pathways of Hope was started off as a faith-based organization. It was called Fullerton Interfaith Emergency Services. And um, I'm not, uh, I don't, I don't personally ascribe to any Western religions. I've been, been basically studying Buddhism since I was a young adult, like all Gen X, like a lot of Gen Xers probably. Um, and ascribe, you know, I prescribe and, and ascribe more to that than I do anything else. And, and actually that there's some into very, um, not narcissistic, but very individualist principles in there that try to make me, that try to lead to a place where if everyone focused on themselves, we would have a better community overall. Right. But even within that, and then I think within Christian communities and within, you know, our, our Islam friends or our Islamic or our Muslim friends at, at the temples, um, and our, 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 our friends who are Jewish. And I think everyone can agree that there is a moral issue with how we treat the poor. Right. And like, to me, the moral issue is one that everyone has to make that determination for themselves. But I, I personally can't really abide by living in a society that just consistently beats down on its poorest people and makes it harder and harder and harder for them to exist and live. Like it does not make a lot of sense to me. So I think like, you know, you can pick whichever of those three buckets you ascribe right. to. Some people, it's all, right. it's all a moral issue. For some people, it's it, very conservative people. Sometimes it's all a financial issue. And I have friends that are all over sure. the spectrum, but sure. pick one, pick one yeah. and then tell me we shouldn't end homelessness, you know? Right. And, and it was really interesting to me. And it was years ago. And, and my students were talking about community problems. And of course, homelessness is, has been, you know, just a recurring theme in my classroom. Um, and they and they were talking about Utah, this really innovative program of housing first. Yep. And and first, I just had cognitive distance of like Utah. Utah is leading the way. But for a lot of the Utah politicians, it was strictly financial. Like it is cheaper to provide housing. And, and that's when I really started to see, and, and, you know, I didn't have the framework to put it in three buckets of like, oh, we can move a lot of people on using different motivations of, of why they need to work on this. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the Utah examples actually, um, it is really interesting. I, I think that they've they've actually had a little bit of a return, uh, like a, a small bit of uptick in their in their numbers. But it was a it was a really old, pretty conservative guy. If I can, Lloyd Pendleton, who's since passed, who was just an awesome dude. I got to meet him once, and he was just oh. just a great guy. We were BSing in the halls at a conference and he was just great. You know, he was just awesome, dude. And we were just talking and getting along and like, you couldn't find two people who are more different than sure. I, you know, sure. like, but we both agreed. It's like, well, why wouldn't you do this? It like, doesn't make any sense. Right. right. Um, and so, you know, he, he found a soft spot with, I think Utah in some ways where he was very approachable to the kind of political leadership they had there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he found a way to, to use who he was as Lloyd right. to kind of get in their ear and say, this is what we should do. And they did it. And it worked for a long time. I, I think the problem is now is that like sustainability of stuff like that has been tough, like making sure that the right resources are aligned with the Absolutely. actual problem. So right. that's why there's an uptick everywhere. And that's a whole other issue. But, yeah. Right. Well, and, and, and some of the, the issues that you brought up, which, which is the economic realities um, yeah. th- that- I mean, homelessness is an economics issue. It's not an issue of anything else. It's not, right. it's not closelessness. It's not, you know, it's not a drug and alcohol issue as much as people want to make. I mean, my, you know, I, I know plenty of people that are alcoholics that are, have houses, they own houses, you know what I mean? Like they have jobs, like they're, you know, whatever you want to call them, quote unquote, functioning alcoholics, whatever the hell that means. Like, you know, you can't, you can't use those things to calibrate the homeless issue as being an issue of that. You have to say, well, what is the thing that makes someone homeless? Well, they don't have a place to live. Right. And the primary driver of that is they cannot afford one. Everything else is ancillary. If your rent was a dollar a month, you'd be able to afford your rent. And for some people, it does need to be a dollar a month or nothing in order for them to stay housed so that they're not on the street, which is the place where they start costing all of us community health and money and everything else. Right. And, and one of, one of the programs, one of the programs that, that, you know, kind of got more attention during the pandemic, but was something that a lot of agencies were doing, which is trying to keep people in their homes, trying to keep people in their apartments. And if you can talk a little bit about that, because I know, particularly for my, you know, baby boomer listeners and friends who, you know, bought a house for $20,000 and, and, and just don't understand the reality of a how expensive rent is in North Orange County because yeah. my students yeah, pay mean, more for rent for a two bedroom apartment than I pay for my mortgage. Totally. And how incredibly expensive it is to be poor. Yeah, I mean, well, that second part I think really is something that people don't understand. If you think of poverty and you think of expenses as a proportion of the money you have food costs a hell of a lot more for you than it does not you specifically, but a poor person than it does maybe for me or somebody who, you know, does okay. Right. And like, um, I think that that's, people can't think of that stuff proportionally. Right. And I think that that's where things really get sideways. And the number one metric for that is like how many people pay over 50% of their income in rent. Right. Absolutely. A A ton. So if your rent, one of your students, as you were talking about, Let's say they split that two bedroom, right? And their rent is $1,100 a month, right? But that's 40% or 50% or more of their income because they're full-time students. They're 60, 70%. What's left over isn't much. And the proportion of that that then has to go towards everything else leaves them with like next to nothing. Right. And I think that's one thing that people who have don't understand, right? Correct. I I run into this all the time, as I'm sure you do. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's a game of proportion, right? Like, and I, like, if I wasn't in this work, you know, I bought a house over 20 years ago in Old Town Orange. I mean, yeah, like I, I understand the proportion thing and the inverse, right? Right. Kind of like what you're describing. Like if you, if you did it at the right time, but like trying to do that today with how we've allowed things to go is like nearly impossible. Right. And so it's, you know, for me, it's like, it's up to me to advocate for all those things that, cause I, cause I, I, I understand one side of it on a personal level. And then I understand what it's like because I work with this population and I do right. this work and I'm passionate about it on the other. So for me, it's almost like, 
I want to like knock people around and just go, you dimwits. Don't you understand? Like like my friends and stuff, you know what I mean? Like, Hey, wake up, dude. Do you not understand like how good you have it? And like how hard it is over here for these folks? Like it's crazy. It's totally crazy. The the first time I refinanced my, my mortgage, I was like, what, wait, I I don't have to pay a mortgage for two months because I'm switching. Like I felt like an Academy Award actress being given free stuff when I made $20 million a movie, right? I'm like, where were you? Where were you when rent relief when I needed it? Yeah, this just happened to me last summer. I mean, or this last, this summer we just passed. I refinanced my house because I wanted to do some work on it. And they're basically giving money away because interest rates are so low. And the only thing my wife and I could talk about when we went to the signing for the documents was like, like, it's ridiculous that like, we have this asset already and then we're being thrown more money instead of like, well, wait a second, why not help other people? Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being like really vulnerable and talking about it because it's an honest open conversation, but like, I'm also signing the documents for it. Cause how do I say no to it too? Right. It's well, like, no, exactly. It creates this, this, this really bad situation all around where it's just, you know, fairness is not truly stratified, you know, Absolutely. like people want to talk about it being, but it's not. It's not And the all. incredible high cost of, of moving apartments where you have to put down a security oh, uh-huh. department yeah. and they do credit checks and just the, the incredible cost for somebody who yeah. already can't afford the rent. Totally. We talk about it with people we're working with all the time. Like we have to figure out where $5,000 comes from for you to move. Right. And that's insane. That's insane. I don't have that. And I have a good job and I'm a homeowner. I don't have 5,000 liquid. I can just tap into at any time. I'd have to use a credit card, you know? And it's like, that's where a lot of folks during COVID have gotten money to pay their rent and stuff. So, okay. So they couldn't wait for the rental programs to get started. So they use their credit card and now they owe 27% on $5,000 that they took out of the bank or whatever. Right. I mean, people are just being beaten down by this system. It's insane. Absolutely. Absolutely. So all, I think all of that, and, and we're talking more about affordable housing. We're talking more about keeping people in, um, you know, the eviction ban during during the pandemic. But yeah. I, I think, um, you know, just what are some of the myths that we can we can destroy about homeless and affordable housing? Yeah, the number one myth about affordable housing that drives me insane. Um, and just I, I just when I hear it, I just my teeth just uh, clenched. Is this idea that people move here to be homeless, right? Because the weather's good or there's no oh, services right. or something. Yes. Like California is the promised land for homelessness. Yes. The reality is, is the, the all of the data shows that uh, 80% of people who are homeless in a place have been there for at least 10 years, mm-hmm. right? So these are people that whether they moved here 10 years ago and were in a precarious situation financially, or they had an apartment and backslid into homelessness, which is a very common thing. I mean, it's when I talk about it being an economics issue, I mean, I can't, I mean, Again, me speaking as a homeowner who does pretty well, I cannot I cannot miss my mortgage payment because I don't have a lot of money and savings to then backstop that. Right now, I have other tools at my disposal, right for sure. But the the fact is, is liquidity is what runs things when you're a right. renter, right? right? When you are a renter, that is it, right? There there there's someone to answer to, and you got to give them money, right? And without without assets and tools, like you cannot do that. And so, the common story of homelessness is. Uh, you know, I broke my foot and uh, missed work, was on disability, couldn't afford my rent, had to live with a friend. Then I lived in my car. Now I'm on the street. Right. Like this is not an uncommon story. It is. This is more common than the, oh, I had a meth problem. Right. Correct. Most mental health and substance abuse issues develop on the street. And it's a lot of the time as a result of the trauma people are undergoing, because living on the street as a homeless person is a 24 hour game of survival with so much trauma. Right. And so this idea that these people weren't part of our community is like the myth that drives me crazy. These were your damn bus drivers. These people taught your kids preschool. These kids, these people made your lattes at one point. You know, they did stuff in your community. You may have known them and they backslid to homelessness, you know? It's it's that's that's the first myth that drives me insane. It's that dehumanization of the problem. Yeah. That I don't care because they are not human. Right. And people do this to all poor people, not just people who not just people who are unhoused, but all poor people, you know, a little small aside. I know I talk a lot, so I apologize. But over the weekend, I was in the Bay Area and I came home and there's a town in the middle of the state called Mendota. OK, 
Mendota is about 20 miles east of the five and 20 miles west of Fresno. So it sits right in the middle between 99 and the five. Right. right. If you don't know where that is in the state, it's like almost dead middle in the state. Yeah. Right. Mendota is a town of about 12,000 people. And in 2019, it was voted the worst place in America to live. I guarantee whoever wrote that story had never actually been there. So I went to Mendota to see. You know what it is? It's a super working class agricultural based town of mostly Latin folks who have moved up from the from Central America. A lot of it's uh, Salvadorian. And they have started small businesses and they all work in ag and they have seasonal work. So their unemployment rate fluctuates a lot. And yes, they have some gang activity, but it's just a damn town of hardworking people that are just trying to get by like everybody else. Right. And the demonization that I that I was reading when I was reading this article about it drove me insane. I went there. They have a beautiful public library. And I mean, this is getting a little off from homeless stuff, but it just it's a consistent thing we do is that. When we dehumanize, we don't have to think about or worry about people right. or like advocate for them, right? And that's not okay. Correct. That's it's, not yeah, okay. Absolutely. And yeah. and it happens all the time in politics and politics all the time. is that all we the time. dehumanize them and then we defund them. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 100%. So what's another myth? I think, uh, you know, another myth that's pretty common is somehow affordable housing brings down housing values or home prices or something in a community. Actually, all the all the real data on it shows that it actually usually increases because new affordable housing projects usually go up somewhere that was um, less desirable, like a patch of land that was not desirable in a community or businesses that had failed. Um, buildings that you know were dilapidated, and usually those are raised, and something nice comes up. And generally, optics and visual appeal, as everyone knows, are the number one things that drive, along with schools, transportation, stuff like that, which are all just kind of kind of stagnant and 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 uh, priced into uh, where you buy a home. But usually, the visual appeal and the accessibility to services are the things that drive home prices, right? A lot of the time, and. Um, you know, I, I think affordable housing in 2021, <laughs> I mean, it's usually beautiful. A lot of times it's the best looking stuff in a community. Right. It just caters to a group of people who are not homeowners. It may not be, right? right. But it gives them a safe place to live. And it, you know, a lot of times offers services on site for those people too. Um, so, you know, the, the idea that affordable housing in 2021 is unsafe or brings down your home value or whatever is really just code for we don't like poor people. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Sure. And it's, 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 class warfare by proxy, you know? Right. So, and, and when you the look at the incomes that qualify for affordable housing, you're like, these are our teachers. Yeah. These are, these are, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, it runs the gamut, right? It's everything from mom works at Walmart and dad works as a mechanic, but they have four kids. So right. like their average median income in a household that big, right. In 2021, right. not going to be a lot of money, you know, warehouse worker and a, right. and a, and a back office dental assistant, right? I mean, the two of them together with a couple of kids and suddenly they're poor, you know? And that's the reality of the world we live in. And I think like going back earlier to like what I wanna shake my people and like explain to them is like, you know, poverty doesn't look like you think it does. Absolutely. You know? and, that's, and that drives me, that drives me crazy. And that's, that's, that's embedded in all these myths, you know? Right. Yeah. And and I think our campus really went through that decades ago when we started the food bank and, and my colleague mm. dearly departed Chris Lamb, who really spearheaded that. And she hit a lot of resistance in our campus because people said, but we don't have poor people. Yeah, no, you, you do. I mean, you, for sure. And Chris knew we, that. We always know. have, but, but mm-hmm. it's really easy to hide. Yeah. Um, well, it's easy to it's easy to ignore, right? It's easy absolutely. to ignore. You don't even have to actively hide it. You can just say, "I don't believe it's there," and then just move on, right. right? Or, you know, we have people in this community here who just you can, you know, you can give them it. You know, it's just. I mean, we live in an area. We live in a world of misinformation now, right? right. And like anti-science and everything. And you know, people pick and choose what science they want to understand and listen to and stuff. And when you present data that shows housing people would be better for the community. Most of these people have a disability or something that's going to ever keep them from working a job that they can pay market rent with, whatever, right? People don't, people do this. They put their fingers in their ears and go, nah, 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 I don't want to hear it. And it just, because it fits their narrative, you know? Absolutely. And what you're talking about, the food pantry, there was just a narrative for years. You know, how could a college college student lives at home with mom and dad, you know, at a community college and they're doing great. Right. You know? And and I think one of the problems that we have is, um, 
not even the misinformation. It's just my personal story must be what everyone else experiences. So true. The projection, right? Like, yeah, I mean, and what's interesting is like, I can't do that either. So even though like the day I turned 18, my mom came to me and for a, a room in a small apartment that I was sharing with my brother who was seven years older or younger than me. So he was 11 and I was 18. My mom came to me the day I turned 18 and handed, had her hand out and said, give me 300 bucks for rent. You know, it's like, that was reality for us. Right. right? And like, it's, I can't even project that story because that's my story. Right. But the point is, I know all of these stories exist, right? Like I know the stories of foster youth who are trying to go to college, right? And how hard that is, right? Um, And so it's like the idea that you could pretend that your story is the sole individual one, whether it's a great story or a bad story, is just like, again, it's just like, it's just denying reality. Correct. Absolutely. so. So how has the pandemic changed what you do and how you do it? Uh, for me personally, I mean, I lost 10 pounds, uh, grew a beard and long hair. Um, no, I, you know, I think the, for Pathways of Hope, I think the good thing is that we were, it's so weird because I, we talked about this from day one because of the kind of cultural values we have and ethos as an organization, we talked about it from day one where we said, okay, this is one of those really kind of crappy times when you know you're going to build work on the backs of misery. Right. And so essentially we were well positioned because how well we do our work to take on a lot of new projects that were directly trying to impact people's material needs. Right. So, you know, city of Anaheim was very generous right off the bat, had us help them with rental assistance. Um, You know, we got this giant program from, from the County, obviously on rental assistance. We ran a safe parking program in Fullerton. You know, we, we, there were all these nitpick, not nitpick, um, all these, sort of separate sort of disparate projects we put together, you know, and then we ended up just kind of growing as a result. And that, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't feel great to grow in those kinds of conditions, but what does feel good is knowing you did make a difference. You helped a lot of people and that, that growth was predicated on the idea that people trusted you to do a good job. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, we saw our numbers. Yeah. We saw our numbers in one day. So March 15th, I think was the big day when the previous administration kind of announced, okay, we, we have a problem here. Right. And then, you know, I, there was that night where, um, where Rita and Tom Hanks were announced as having COVID in Correct. Australia and the NBA season shut down. Right. That all happened while I was in a board meeting uh, with my board. And literally that day, I think we helped 43 or 44 people at our food pantry. And that was a Wednesday on Friday. So one, just one gap day on Friday, we helped over 200. Sure. So that rush sure. of people and we never missed a meal. No one never got served. So if you came to us for a bag of food, you got a bag of food. It had to change how we did a lot of things, but you know, it's the same with the colleges, like, you know, Jody, where you're at in Fullerton, like we never, we never didn't serve everyone who needed service. And that's, I think for me, the thing I'm most proud of, right. Is that our team dug their heels in. I mean, I was over slinging groceries, like the executive director. I mean, I, yeah. I Man, there's no job too small for me. I'll clean toilets. I don't care. Like, you know, it's just like, we all had to, we all had to do stuff we don't normally do as a team sure. pitch in because the, the situation called for it. So yeah, I mean, you don't like to build, build work and get new contracts and do new stuff on the back of so much pain, uncertainty, misery. Um, but when you have to do that and step and rise to the rise of the occasion and your, in your group does it so well, our team is amazing. Right. Um, that feels good. You know, that part of it felt good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how can students in a community get involved and help? You know, I think the, the thing we're always looking for is more volunteers. Right. And I think like one, when I was just talking a second ago about those changes, like in the, in the work we do based on um, the changes in the environment and stuff with COVID, you know, one of the things we had to do that night I discussed is like uh, before that Friday where we, where we quadrupled or even quintupled maybe it was our, our food services to the community, people coming to our, to us for food. We had to also send home every volunteer. We couldn't have anyone volunteering. So that's why we had a staff all hands on deck situation that got really like intense. Right. Um, And so I think we're still kind of emerging from some of that. And I think we still have some gaps in volunteerism so people can get, get in touch with us. Um, We have a great volunteer coordinator who would love to work with some students um, my guess is there's some students out there who have service hours they need to complete for some kind of project or, another, or just want the exposure to nonprofit work, you know, right. and, um, 
I think that that can be really valuable. Um, and so, yeah, I think volunteerism is great. Um, ambassadorship is really important. I always say, you know, if I'm not going to ask someone for money, I'm going to ask them just to tell 10 friends about us, you know what I mean? And just get involved right. in some kind of way, you know, build a group of ambassadors for the causes and not, not just for pathways, but like, just like expose your parents and stuff to the realities of, of what it's like to be poor in this country. Cause they may not understand that, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and they should, everybody should. Yeah. Everybody, everybody should. I think that's really true. So I really appreciate you talking to me. Um, at the end of the show, I ask some questions. So what's the best advice you ever got? Um, you know, I, that's a, that's a good question. I, I would link it back to, um, there's probably two. One was keep every business card, right? Because I think like I, I I had the advantage of going back to school when I was a little older so I, and I already had a first career. So I kind of saw the importance of networking. And this is a, a pre-LinkedIn era, pre-social media, really like right. mid-2000s, mid-aughts. But I kind of understood the, the, the importance of keeping contacts close, right? So I think like I definitely like have gotten to this place where and when I say to this place in my career, I feel like I'm making the most impact with the tools I have, right? So I don't, I don't look at being an executive director as like this terminal. It's not like getting a PhD, like a terminal degree. Like this is my terminal job, and like right. I've reached the pinnacle, and like you know I'm here, and like to me this is just the job that makes sense to apply what I can do really well, right? Or what I think I can do okay, right? It's up to other people to decide if I do it well. Um, but like, I think like knowing that I had things to offer. Maybe I wanted to make sure I put myself in the right position. So keeping every business card, keeping my contacts close, keeping in contact with them, never burning bridges, listening, right? Like listening much more than I talked. And that's where my other kind of piece of advice came in is um, in my second job in this career, I was a case manager and I was really excited to do the job, but I feel like I had, a, I, you can tell I have a big personality, right? So I I kind of had a big personality that was overwhelming some of the people I worked with. And there was like some, some nice older folks who I think were a little bit more mellow. And he, he took me to lunch one day, actually he came to my office and said, Hey, let's go to lunch. I said, no, I can't, you know, I brought my own lunch. I can't eat out. And he's like, and I was like making, I was like, I had a mortgage and I was, I was at a job and I had a young son too. And I was, I was getting paid like $30,000 a year. So it was like, right. You know, I'm like, I dude, no, I bring my lunch. Like, he's like, yeah. no, no, no. I'm taking you to lunch. And he sat me down. He's like, you've got to stop. You've got to calm down. You're, I, I realize like you, you think you have answers, but like you need to listen. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay. And I actually learned from that, but I didn't learn it right away either. Like, you know, it took me a while, like, you know, um, developing like humility and stuff, I think is like a lifelong project. Like, I don't think that ever, sure. there is no terminal piece yeah. of that. Right. Because we're all humans and we all have an id and we all have those things. And like, we all have to like constantly manage that. And I mean, there's people who you naturally meet who appear to be more humble than others and more like um, outwardly focused than inwardly, I guess. But like, I think that's a, that's a, that's a muscle that you have to exercise. Right. And you have to ask yourself in situations like what's the right response here and what can I do and how can I be most effective. Right. Um, and I think that conversation with him, I'll never forget it. Um, I think started me in the path of understanding that in a more acute way than like, even like reading philosophical texts had ever like taught me. Right. And, um, I, I I think that had a big impact on me. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And what's one book you like to recommend to people? Uh, so I don't read any books about work and I don't read books about leadership and I read very little nonfiction. Um, I mostly read fiction and, um, and it's kind of niche stuff. Um, I read a lot, but like, I think my favorite book of all time is a book called the beautiful things that heaven bears. Um, and it's by a guy, his, I think his name is Dingyu Mitswa, or I can't pronounce he's Ethiopian. And it's actually about, so a funny story really quickly. I was uh, having a hard time in my personal life. My mom died in 2013 of kidney cancer and it all happened very, very quickly. In the summer of 2015, I was actually at a work conference, a homeless conference in DC. And I was really starting to like have some personal like issues. I mean, you can call it a, a midlife crisis. You can call it whatever you want, but I was trying to really work through my feelings of my mother's death for the first time and just sure. all this other stuff. And like that place, like Gen Xers always seem to find themselves in, which is like, am I happy? What's the meaning of life? Do I want to be doing this? Yada, yada, yada. Right. right. 
And I was really, I was Keeps in DC. And I was with mode for background music. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right. Exactly. Yes. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And I was in DC and I, I was surrounded by friends and it was okay, but I was, I was just really having a hard time with stuff. And um, I was in the back of a cab on the way, all the way out to Dulles, which is the much further airport from DC. And so it's like a 23, 24 mile cab ride. And I'm talking to the cab driver and he's this really nice guy. And I know he's from Africa, but I don't, I don't ask him, you know, I'm not like having a conversation about which country or anything, but then he throws this idea at me. He's like, you know, my son wrote a book that I think you should read. And I just get this energy. Like you really should read it. And I was like, all right, what is it? And then he told me it was the beautiful things that heaven bears. And I was like, okay. I'm like, I've never heard of it, but he told me about it. And then he, um, he, I literally went on my phone and bought a used copy on Amazon while I was in the back of the cab, back of his car, his Uber or whatever. And we just had this amazing conversation that I went home and I read it in like two days when it arrived. And it, it's about, I mean, it's just a fiction book, but it's about an Ethiopian immigrant who runs a liquor store in DC. And he has starts a relationship with a woman who, who is uh, American and Caucasian and has a daughter. And um, it talks about, it, it touches on the issues of gentrification and, and stuff like that in DC. And I'm, I'm sort of DC obsessed. Like I love, it's my, it's, probably my second favorite city, but I love Washington, DC. Mm-hmm. And um, it just really hit all these right notes for the kind of stuff I like. And I love it. And I buy it for people and give it to them all the time. I bought it for a friend of mine a while ago. And yeah, um, I have a hard copy and a, and a paperback. I mean, it has nothing to do with anything I do. Uh, I just love it. It's, and it's, it's life, an amazing right? Book. We have to be human first. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I am such a firm believer in that idea that we have to be human first. Right. And um yeah, it just hits the right notes for me. I love it. Absolutely love it. I recommend it to everybody. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I, I tell my students all the time, like, you know, the, the, they'll, they'll often get the message from their parents, like, you shouldn't major in art or English or, you know, you have to, uh, as, especially yeah. the, the children of immigrants, they get this, you know, you've got to be in STEM, you've got to be in STEM. And yeah. it's like, you know, during the pandemic, I, I, I love everything that those scientists were doing, but I also got through because of art. I got through yeah. it because of literature. I got through it because of theater. I got through it because of, of songs and music. Yeah. Um, and and so that's really important. And I think sharing those I mean, books going back to us. Yeah, going back to the start of this conversation, it's that pressure. You know, I, I don't want to throw the parents completely under the bus personally. No, because like, no. I feel like they, it's residual pressure that they probably have of felt course. or feel on behalf of their children because they see how the world is around them. Right. And so like, it's, 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 it's the world we've created for some reason. And right. I think that, you know, the idea that I wouldn't encourage my kids at this point actually to do the other thing, right. And to do exactly what they want to do, whether or not it's art or whatever. And for them to just understand that there might be certain challenges with that, but this is what you're facing. I think is actually the the pendulum swinging the other way is the better place to be in my opinion. But I also totally appreciate and understand why they're like that, especially parents who are first generation maybe and came here and it was so terrible and hard for them to get established, you know? And yeah, I mean, it's tough, right? It's like, which is the right answer, but I would never, it, it troubles me like how far we've departed from the idea of, of arts and what arts are and, and things like that. Um, I could go on for hours about that, even recent examples of things that have happened. And it's just, yeah, I mean, I think we have to embrace that. That that makes a complete human. That's the human experience, right? right? The human experience. Um, Yeah. And I I think we need that. We've lost a lot of that, unfortunately. That's probably why we're so, we're so at each other's throats and we just have differing opinions when we probably all like the same Husker Du record. Well, us old punks do at least. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, is there a hopeful message you can share with our listeners? I mean, I, I think, yeah, you know what? I think the, the the way I stay hopeful and I stay like optimistic and positive, and maybe this doesn't work for anyone, is I I love the human experience. I think it's tragic and it's messy and it's, but it's also compelling and it's rich and it's beautiful. And I think when you start to look at, one of the things I teach my students all the time, and especially in my evaluation class at Cal State Fullerton, and, is it's really hard to evaluate the work we do because human beings are so complicated and so messy and run the gamut of emotions in any given time. And um, 
I, I think instead of running and, and, and the problem of course, is that as, as helpers, right? Like people like me and like what you do with teaching and stuff, like we're also messy and complicated and right. have our own shit. We're bringing, sorry, right. if you can't, if you have to blur that out, but yeah. you know, we, we, we have all that stuff too, that we have, what right. we bring to the table. Right. And like, that's what the world is. It's just a big cacophony of, of messed up biological creatures all trying to communicate with each other and right. like, and like help each other sometimes and are at each other's, but it's all in a sense, it's, it's all beautiful in its own way. And I think I, I just, I like that and I'm okay with that. Right. I'm okay with like, uncertainty and messiness and mm-hmm. our screwed upness in general. And I think if we embraced that and accepted that instead of trying to make everything perfect and sterilized and, and right. trying to like, and predictable. you know, make sure predictable. Yeah. And like, like trying to make sure we check boxes and fit into things. Who cares? Throw the boxes right. away, man. Whatever it is you are, you are. And that's great. Right. Um, a friend of mine, I did, I do a podcast too. And a friend of mine, I, I, I drove up to Santa Inez and did a podcast with him last week on my way to the Bay Area to do another one with another friend of mine. And we were having a, a kind of a conversation about politics, which I find myself less interested in these days, but he really wanted to talk about it. One of the things he said, I think it was funny. He was like, he's like, I want all of my friends, no matter what their pronouns are, no matter what their ethnic background is, no matter what their um, gen- preferred gender is, no matter what their sexual orientation is. I want them all to have AK-47s to protect themselves. And that's my political thing. And he was joking, but what he was saying was like, he just wants all his friends and people he knows to be happy and healthy and whole, no matter who they are. Right. And I don't know. I I found like, I mean, I don't think it's a sanguine attitude to like, just sit back and go, it's cool. Like we're all, we're all effed up and like, whatever happens, happens. I think it's actually an embracing of reality, right. Instead of trying to run away from it and be something you're not, or try to try to, run away from this, this idea that like, you know, the, the idea of living from, from cradle to grave is, can just be a beautiful thing in and of itself. Right. And it doesn't have to be polluted with expectations all the time. It's really quite honestly, it's, it's economics and man-made structures that have like gotten us to this place where, you know, we now have to feel like we have pressure to fit and check boxes to accomplish things. And like, I'd like to live in a, I'd like to live in a world where accomplishments are like the number one accomplishment is just being a decent person. Right. Like that would be a good start. That you know? would be wonderful. Yeah. Anyway, so that's my and, and, and I think what we value and I think, you know, embracing the human experience and, and it doesn't fit on a spreadsheet. It's yeah. beautiful. I mean, yeah. loss, pain, I mean, glory, you know, victory, all these things are beautiful and we should embrace all of them. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I, I love that idea. It, it takes me back to, you know, the lessons you learn as parents of, uh, yeah. you know, y- you lose the second you try to control the outcome. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's, you know, with with my kids, it's it's definitely in our house conversations about effort and conversations around understanding and um, right. and making sure that you are present, right? So like, hey, you know, you have this homework assignment done to do, great. Yes, it's a box you got to check, but you know what? You're in school and this is your responsibility right Right. now. So let's get this done and let's do the best we can with it. And we'll talk about the outcome later, right? And like, I I think like that, if like people just kind of focused on process more than results, right? Um, You know, I I feel like, I feel like we'd be in a much better place, you know, but what do I know? So who else should we talk to? Who should we talk to next? Oh man, there's so many people. Um, I don't know. Have you have you ever talked to Farrell Hirsch, the guy who runs the Muffin Thaler? I haven't. No. Oh, Farrell's an amazing guy with a great story. I would okay. actually really think about talking to him. Yeah, he's a he's a fantastic human being. I really like right? Farrell. Yeah, and. So, uh, yeah, give him a yeah, ring him up. I think he'd be a fun, fun person to have on I your will. show. The, the and he can great. talk a lot about how the arts are important too. I mean, uh, that's that's really his absolutely. His and, and you know, I think um when we talk about politics and policy, it's it's what makes our communities work. And the arts and the yeah. are are essential. And yeah. I, I think we've I mean it's you know, I, I I think on the arts thing, you know, it's really hard to manufacture stuff, right? And what I mean by that is like I, so just as an example, there's a old recording studio in the Arlington, Virginia area. So outside of Washington, DC, that's being torn down soon. And the guy is being asked to leave. And um, 
you know, this is a place that recorded a lot of indie rock and post-punk and punk rock legends that were on a label called Discord, which is massively influential and important in Washington, D.C. Yeah, you even know who they are. I mean, it's, you know, you don't have to grow up a punk and and look like me with all the tattoos and stuff to, like, know who Discord is. Like, Fugazi is like a band. Everyone knows who they are, right? Um, And, you know, they're tearing down his studio to put up what they're calling an arts district. And I'm using air quotes here, arts district. And I'm like, you know, the arts are something that people come together out of a response to something to create and be creative on their own. It's not something you can force. Right. You can't do that through policy. You know, you can give money to the arts and stuff, but to try to try to manufacture what you think arts should be. And you've right. seen it in downtown Santa Ana a little bit too. Like, you know, you've really seen this sort of like, here, here we're going to define what qualifies as art, right. you know? And yeah, I think that's a, that's a really bad road to go down. You know, um, all of my favorite art has always been art of rebellion, right? So whether it was writers in the 30s fleeing to Europe, you know, my favorite writer of all time, didn't write my favorite book, but Henry Miller, you know, or somebody, like they all left to Europe to go discover something that was not in America. And it was an act of rebellion at the time to be an expatriate, right? Um, all my favorite punk rock artists, you know, they're all, the whole concept was like, we're rebelling against something, right? Um, and we're telling you what we think, our interpretation, right? And um, you can't force that. You can't manufacture that. And if we lose our ability for young people, especially to create out of a sense of despair or rage or confusion or um, pessimism, like, or, or optimism or whatever. Right. But if we, if we subtract that capacity from our society for people to do that, you know, you will miss out on so many things right. that open right. doors for young people to understand how the world really works. And that will be tragic. Will right. Be tragic. Right. And, and, a, and a way of expressing emotions and to find commonality and discover the universe within. So thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to Pleasure. seeing you uh, around Fullerton and at the Pathways of Hope fundraiser next year. Totally. Can't wait yeah. for it. Thanks. Thanks.